Turn with me, if you will, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us. We thank you that it shows us who you are. It shows us your beauty your glory. It shows us who we are. It shows us our great need for a Savior. It shows us our future and our hope. And Lord, the anchor of our soul in this life. So would you take your word and plant it deeply within us, use it to strengthen us and encourage us and equip us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we return to to Revelation this week in chapter 19, we need to remember what we have seen in the previous two chapters leading up to this. Uh, This section continues. In chapters 17 and 18, John showed us the great damage that Babylon had caused, both in her harm to the world as well as to the people of God, Christ's church. And because of this, she is to be judged. And we see several reasons in chapter 18. One, all the nations were deceived by her sorcery. Secondly, she glorified herself. And third, and possibly most significant, on her hands was the blood of the saints and the prophets. And so that judgment that is to fall on Babylon is what leads us up to now in chapter 19, what we see is a contrast to the harlot or the prostitute that is the symbol for the worldly power. That worldly system that is opposed to God, opposed to his people, that has been intoxicated 
uh, with the, the, the immorality has intoxicated the world, rather. So the contrast here, then, is this beautiful bride, presented as bright and pure. And this is in contrast to what we see as the woman of Babylon. The woman of Babylon, if you remember, was dressed well. Uh, her clothing appeared attractive, and that shows us that there is a seduction. There is an attractiveness to the worldly system. But what did we find when we looked inside the cup that she held? That it was full of abominations, and she appeared drunk with the blood of the saints. So this is now a contrast then to that woman. We've seen a number of contrasts John has used to help us understand the picture. It's a challenge. It's always a challenge. Revelation, I feel like the further we get into it, the more challenging it is to understand these symbols, what they represent. But contrasts help us do that, and this is one of those. Another thing to keep in mind is just how symbols are used, and this is something that we've talked about a number of times. Symbols in apocalyptic literature are to be understood symbolically. And we get that, and for most of us, it's fairly straightforward on some symbols. But I would guess, for most of us, at least for me, there are some symbols that it's a little harder. And that's because we just have a tendency to look at things literally. It's kind of how we're wired maybe as humans, but more so as Americans, as Westerners, we tend to look at things more literally. So when it comes to a seven-headed beast that emerges okay, that's an easy one. That's symbolic, right? We don't anticipate a literal seven-headed beast emerging. Or even when we think of the symbol of the prostitute, we see that it represents. I mean, we're told over and over that it represents. And then the symbol shifts, like different symbols are used to represent the same world system that is Babylon. So we get that that's symbolic. But as we come to the wedding feast of the Lamb and the description of the bride, I think this is harder to do. And part of this is because these symbols are quite familiar to us. We've seen these in Scripture, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. And feasting in heaven is a consistent symbol that we see. Even the feasting that is spoken of in the Old Testament prophecies, even if you're not able to discern whether this is speaking of a near fulfillment in the nation of Israel or if this is a far-off fulfillment, is this pointing to heaven, we still see that theme that is there. Isaiah 25, 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Psalm 23 is familiar to most of us. You prepare a table before me, my cup overflows. Joel 2.24, the threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. It is clear that in heaven, which all of these things are pointing to, there is an experience of great feasting. There is an experience of plenty when we will have no want. And I do believe that there is strong biblical warrant that the new heavens and the new earth will be ushered in with a great feast. Yet... The image here is still symbolic. It is symbolic of something greater than we can imagine. 
You've heard me say before when the question comes up, what will heaven be like? And what is my answer? At least how does it always start? It'd be better than we can ever imagine, right? Whatever you can imagine, it's going to be better than that. Multiply that times infinity. Uh, We can't even grasp how great heaven is going to be. And this feast that we see, and we will look at more closely in the weeks to come, points to something far greater than simply a one-time meal. Because think about it. What happens, and you who prepare food know this especially, what happens when you prepare a glorious feast? Hours and hours and hours go in, and in moments, it is vanished, right? And so when we think of a great feast, a great meal, we think of about 30 minutes, maybe an hour. We're from other countries. We may know how to feast longer than that, but we Americans tend to feast very quickly. We have busy, busy things to do, things to run off to. There's something more to this than a 10, 20, 30-minute feast. This points to a forever feasting, an eternal great reward when all of our longings are met, an everlasting experience of abundance and flourishing. That is what is being portrayed here. The symbol of this marriage supper of the Lamb is helpful for us in grasping something that is beyond our imagination. And part of helping us to understand what it represents is understanding what a Hebrew marriage was in the first place. That's not something we're typically familiar with. We have our own way of doing things. We have an engagement, and then we have a marriage. And it looks... Eh, There's some variety in how different people do it. Some people have short engagements. Some people have long engagements. But it's it's pretty kind of one-size-fits-all in terms of how we do things. And that's not so with the Jewish cultural understanding of a wedding. And so let me share with you this brief summary that is just worded better than I could describe myself. This is from William Hendrickson. In order to understand the meaning of this sublime passage, we must briefly review the marriage customs of the Hebrews. We distinguish the following elements in a Jewish marriage. First comes the betrothal. This is considered more binding than our engagement. It was actually a legal, it was a legal agreement. The terms of the marriage are accepted in the presence of witnesses, and God's blessing is pronounced upon the union. From this day, groom and bride are legally husband and wife. And you've probably heard this explained some around the birth of Jesus and how Joseph uh, Joseph reacted uh, with Mary in terms of they were in this betrothal uh, phase. They were legally husband and wife. Next comes the interval, and this interval can vary uh, depending on conditions. Next comes the interval between betrothal and the wedding feast. During this interval... The groom pays the dowry to the father of the bride if this has not yet been done. Sometimes the dowry is in the form of service rendered. You might think back to Genesis and our study there. Remember Jacob kind of got suckered on this dowry as the form of service rendered. Then comes the procession at the close of the interval. The bride prepares and adorns herself. Now, this is something that we can identify with. Because we, whether you were a bride or whether you were a groom or whether you've had children that, that uh, you've seen go through this, you understand a lot of work and effort goes into this 
process, the preparation, a day that's been dreamed of. It's not typically something that's just thrown together, but something that a lot of work and effort goes into. The groom, likewise, arrayed in his best attire and accompanied by his friends who sing and bear torches, proceeds to the home of his betrothed. He receives the bride and conveys her with a returning procession to his own home or to the home of his parents. Finally, there is the wedding feast, which includes the marriage supper. The usual festivities last seven or even more days. So with that in mind, let me say that the marriage feast in Revelation 19 is not a seven-to-ten-day event. That's my point. This is not something that will happen and then be over, but it's pointing to something that will last for all eternity. Now, our attention is drawn to this marriage feast, and we will look at it more closely in just a moment. But first, we need to pay attention to the hymns that precede it in verse 19. These are the final hymns in the book of Revelation, and therefore, these are the final hymns in all of Scripture. John begins in verse 1, drawing our attention away from earth where we're seeing Babylon judged and destroyed in chapter 17 and 18. Now our attention is shifted and we're looking into heaven in the vision. And we're seeing, he, he says here, after this I heard, we know that that's a signal for this new section. He's moving our attention. After this I heard, and the focus here begins to show us the contrast. A contrast with what is happening to the woman on earth, Babylon, and now what is happening to the woman, the bride in heaven? What is she doing? Simon Kistemacher writes, When God's plagues strike, nothing is left on earth except distress and devastation. But in heaven, a countless multitude raises the hallelujah chorus. And the chorus is loud. John describes it as such. It is a great multitude that begins with the first word, hallelujah. Now, if you had... uh, done a survey of how many times in Scripture do we see the word hallelujah, uh, we would probably think more than 100, more than 200, 28. In the original languages, hallelujah only appears in Scripture 28 times. 24 of those times are in the Psalms. That makes sense. They're in actually... Most of them are all in five psalms at the very end of the Psalter. In the New Testament, the word hallelujah is only here in chapter 19 in Revelation, just four times. This word is transliterated from a Hebrew word, hallelujah, which means praise, and then an abbreviated form of the name of God, Yahweh, hallelujah, or praise the Lord. That's simply what it means. It's interesting to think that this word is compressed into the end, at the end of the Psalter, that it, this is how the Psalter comes to a close. In Psalms 146 to 150, those five Psalms all begin and end with the word, Hallelujah. Here, the New Testament canon reaches its end with the final hymns recorded in this book being these Hallelujah hymns. We see the word four times. It's also interesting that these Hallel Psalms, and there were other Hallelujah hymns, these were the ones that were sung at the Passover. And so Jesus, in his earthly ministry, when he instituted the Lord's Supper at that Passover meal, they would have gone away singing these Hallelujah hymns. That's how he ended his earthly ministry. 
Following this exclamation of praise to God, John attributes three pronouncements of praise. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. We know that the people of God, as the people of God, we were chosen before the creation of the world, before the foundations of the world, according to Ephesians 1. In other words, we were betrothed to the Lamb. He then came in the flesh and He paid for our salvation. He paid the dowry. He alone accomplishes our salvation. We do not contribute to it. And so what would we expect then after the dowry is paid? What comes next? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Or the marriage supper. This one's of the Lamb, but the marriage supper. That's what would come next. We're in this interval now between when the dowry has been paid and the marriage supper will come. And so that's what we await. The next praise ascribed is glory. And in Hebrew, the word for glory actually has this connotation of weighty. A lot of times we think of things like light or uh, uh, shining, bright, that kind of thing when we think of glory, but really the idea of weighty or that which matters. Paul Gardner writes, For us, glory carries connotations of great light and brilliance, but God's glory is much more than that. To talk of God's glory is to summarize all of God's character and being. He is like none other. It is part of His glory that He is light, that He is self-existent, and that all power belongs to Him. And then power is that third element that we see ascribed to God here. The power of God is on display not only in the judgment against Babylon, against all her wickedness, but especially in the accomplishing of our salvation. And this is displayed before us in the resurrection of Jesus following his death for our sins. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 1, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for who he is, and what he has done, because his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. God is the same. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is holy, and he is righteous. And he is here praised because, as Gardner again writes, he is the perfect judge and has proved utterly trustworthy in his judgment upon Babylon. More than that, His judgments are true and just because he has saved his people. The next exclamation begins again with a shout of hallelujah. Here we see the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This is alluding to the final judgment, the eternal reward for sin. This is eternal suffering. This is describing hell. And it is hard for us to think of a praise, hallelujah, given for the suffering of, the, uh, of, of eternal damnation. We might even be squeamish to even think such a thing. But let me tell you what we ought to think when we think of hell. First of all, hell shows us the treachery of our own sin. Eternal judgment communicates something to us about how grave our sin is. It's what we deserve. So secondly, it shows us the magnificence of Christ's salvation for us. What we deserve, we have been saved from. This is what Christ has accomplished. 
So hell demonstrates this to us as well. But it also shows us the urgency with which we should share the hope that we have in Christ with those who are lost, that they may hear and respond to the good news of the gospel. Next, in chapter 4, the John, or verse 4, John describes the 24 elders. These represent, we've talked about this, the redeemed throughout time and the four living creatures representing the heavenly hosts. These also exclaim praise, Amen, Hallelujah. Now the word Amen or Amen, I mix them up or I twist them, use both all the time. I don't know which is the right one, so I, you know, if you hold me to that, I'll say it both ways. But the word amen is simply an affirmation. It's an agreeing with. And so they're seeing what is happening, and they are affirming what they are seeing. Greg Beale writes, Now the consummate, amen, hallelujah, is expressed because God's end-time covenant community have been decisively delivered at the end of history. And here they are pictured falling down in worship before God, who is seated on the throne. And then comes a voice in verse 5. It's a command, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So this includes us. There's no one left out here. Everyone is called to give God our praise. The small and great, I think, is written to us. I don't think this is, this is how God sees us. I think we could go to a number of other passages on this. I think this is saying no matter how you're perceived in this life, small or great, And I think most of us, by human standards, are probably in the small category. All of us, small or great, are called to praise God because no matter what your status is, you've been saved by grace alone. It isn't anything of your greatness, how it's perceived in this life, that has made you more worthy, more attractive to God, more easy for Him to save. You have been saved out of mercy by grace and so you are called to give God praise. And as if the volume of the first one wasn't loud enough, John adds additional detail in this next one in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. John here is, it feels a little bit like he's reaching like he's stretching to describe something using earthly human terms that we can understand, peals of thunder, mighty waters, but to describe something that's just indescribable. He's witnessing something here that's monumental. He's out of words, and so he's pulling from nature and and combining things together to try and help us understand just how monumental this is. And this hymn, too, begins with the exclamation, Hallelujah! And the next phrase is, the Lord Almighty reigns. We've seen this same description. Uh, We've talked about this. The trumpets, the seals, the bowls are all parallels. So the seventh of each describes the end, and so we expect to see some similarities. So when we look at the seventh trumpet in 11, verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. It's almost the same idea that's expressed here. Now, God has always reigned, hasn't He? Has He ever stopped reigning? No, He's sovereign over all things. He's never stopped reigning. But what John is describing here in the book of Revelation is the consummation of the reign of Christ, stripped away from all its hindrances that blind us, particularly sin. In other words, 
Everyone now is going to recognize Christ for who He is. No one will be blinded by sin anymore. All that were blinded and haven't repented have, have been judged. And now, in this moment, the mask is removed and Christ is seen. And this consummation is the marriage of the Lamb to His bride. Now we saw with the Hebrew custom of marriage, the bride now prepares herself. She makes herself ready. The bridegroom and the bride have their long-awaited day of coming together. Look in verse 8. That it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. What is this saying? That salvation belongs to our God. It was granted to her. It was a gift that we have been given. Christ has clothed us with His righteousness. This idea of clothing is seen throughout Scripture. We've seen it already a number of times in the book of Revelation, that we have been washed clean, that we have been given new clothes. We are called to clothe ourselves with righteousness. Uh, We see the warning in other parts of Revelation not to be naked or exposed when Christ returns, but to clothe ourselves. So we understand that the clothing is not something we go to the store and buy. It's not something we go out and earn and achieve. It is a gift that has been given to us. Jesus spoke to the church at Sardis, to the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. But then, in the second part of verse 8, we see that the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So, is this telling us that we earn our clothing? No. Because the first doesn't, or the, the second doesn't uh, undo what the first says. The first says is that they have been granted to us. It's just like work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, right? This is a gift, and yet the gift produces something. It produces righteous deeds. They have been granted to us. We have not earned them. Ephesians 2.10 states, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 25. Then the righteous will answer Him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. As the bride of Christ, this is how we prepare ourselves for the marriage, for the wedding day. This is how, as the bride, we make ourselves ready. And I'm convicted here because I think of how many opportunities I miss to demonstrate this kind of love, to show to the least of these the love that has been shown to me. I wonder what opportunities am I failing to see or I'm just too busy or too distracted or too consumed with my own desires that I might show others the fine linen with which I've been clothed clothed by the grace of Christ through the righteousness of these deeds. It's only when I come back to the gospel, only when I see how I've been saved that I'm able to walk by grace in such a manner. Simon Kistemacher writes this, These righteous deeds, therefore, are made possible through God's grace at work in the hearts of the saints. 
Set free from the bondage to Satan, the redeemed dedicate their lives to serve God. This is how the bride makes herself ready. In the final part of this section, the angel gives John specific instruction to write down this fourth of seven Beatitudes that we see in the book of Revelation. Look in verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now here, the symbol shifts a little bit. Because up until this point, we the church have been portrayed as the bride. And now we're being described of as the guests. The guests are those who have been invited who have responded by faith, who now come and join in and feast with the Lamb. There is no other way to get the invitation, and there's a parable that Jesus uses to make this point clear, than to be clothed in wedding garments. You can't come. There's, you remember the parable where the one comes who doesn't have the wedding garment and he gets kicked out, right? The only way you can come is with the wedding garment, the fine linen. You have to be clothed with this. And the only way that you can receive this bridal clothing is to repent and believe in the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, our Redeemer, stands ready to save. Trust in Him today that you may be forgiven of your sins, that you may be invited to enter into this glorious feast that will last forever and ever. John is so moved by all that is happening. And we see this in his response because Like many of us, when we get overwhelmed and excited, we do silly things. And John does something that he's quickly rebuked for. He falls to worship this angel, this messenger. And the angel rebukes him, you must not do that. And then reminds him, I'm a servant just like you. A servant of Jesus. And then he gives him the simple command, worship God. This is why we were made, why we were created for the glory of the one who made us. And so our response is to worship him and him alone. John ends with this statement, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy in verse 10. This points to this role that we have as the church in keeping and proclaiming the testimony of Jesus as we await the marriage supper. We have a commitment to keep the testimony of Christ. We see this command in Revelation in a number of places. Those who kept the testimony of Christ are the redeemed. We're given this command to keep this testimony. How do we keep it? Well, by remembering the testimony of Christ, by proclaiming the testimony of Christ as revealed in His Scripture, as understood in the Gospel. His testimony of salvation speaks forth through us to the need that all of us have as sinners, that we need a Redeemer. And so our keeping of this testimony through the righteous deeds of the saints proclaims that hope to a lost and dying world. Our proclaiming His Word is a means by which He reigns through us until He returns. So as we wait for the return of our King, may we as His bride seek to make ourselves ready for this wedding and feast. We have been granted to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, given by grace. A righteousness that is to be put on display through the righteous deeds as we seek to do unto the least of these. And we can live selflessly, giving up all that we treasure and everything that we hold dear, because we are loved and held firmly by the one who has betrothed us to himself in grace. Hear these words from Isaiah. For your maker is your husband, 
The Lord Almighty is His name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Let's pray. Father, that you would help us to understand what it is to be your bride. Would you help us to see that this is not just a, a merit badge that we pin on and, and, and wait like it's fire insurance until the end, but that we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not only for our salvation, but also to declare the testimony of Jesus through living out the righteous deeds to which we have been prepared beforehand to walk in. Would you help us grasp that? See that. Look for those opportunities. Live our lives in such a way. Not get wrapped up in the things of this world. Not become enticed by the seductive nature of Babylon. The worldview that pervades all the water that we swim in. Lord, would you help us in this way? Help us to see Jesus in all of his glory for all that he is. And find him worthy to live as a people who adorn themselves in these righteous deeds. Lord, only you can do this. We can't do this in our power. We can't do this in our own strength. We need you to work within us. So would you have your way and do in us that which brings you glory, that others might see this great hope of salvation that we have in Jesus. We pray that you would do this, that you might receive the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.